Hello, and welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your sessions and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast, as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide. And I'm Dr. Jeffrey Smith. That's Jeffrey with an E-R-Y. I'm a psychiatrist and associate professor of psychiatry at New York Medical College. And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice. We're beginning part two of the book, uh, which is about what therapists actually do. In the first eight chapters, we looked at the infrastructure of psychotherapy, and, and now getting into really the meat of it, what do we do in the therapy room, starting with the first session? Very good. Uh, I'd just like to emphasize that the first eight chapters of the book are, are all about understanding what underlies every psychotherapy, how people change, how their problems happen, and how psychotherapy can change those things. So now we've established that infrastructure, and now we're going to turn to what do therapists actually do, and this chapter is about the first session. Now, Presumably, you know, most people who, who are listening to this podcast have had some experience with therapy, either possibly as clients, but as therapists. And we want to emphasize then not so much the cookbook, though the book does actually present kind of a cookbook for you if, if you're interested, but some of the most important points. And I think there's three things that jump out as being particularly uh, important here. The first one is that people come because they have some kind of suffering or some kind of a problem. They seek therapy. And we can't overemphasize the importance of really taking the time to understand that, understand exactly what is troubling them, because that's the source of the energy that's going to carry the therapy forward. And so so it's super important. The second one is that we want to use, as we go on, our curiosity and our expectations. Those are natural things that happen with all of us in any conversation. And in a therapy conversation, we get to go deeper, but we want to use those instruments in a way to pick up the things that are surprising, the things that turn out a little different than what we might expect, because that's where the important clues are about about what's going on. And, and the third thing I want us to emphasize is how important it is to establish a, a good rapport with, uh, with our client because, again, that's going to be a basis that carries us through the tough times ahead. So with those three points, let's, let's go ahead and get started. Okay. And I just want to add that for many clinicians, uh, the first session is, often involves a computer. Uh, templates that they have to follow and uh, very specific questions that they have to ask when they're working within a clinical setting or a group practice setting and and so my sense is that then what you're saying in chapter 9 is really getting to the essence of, of what the chief complaint is and being able to satisfy the the clinical requirements and yet being able to really get to to the heart of the matter the chief complaint so there's a lot of clinicians out there who get really distracted 
by the fact that they have a form that they have to fill, that they have a computer now, everything has to be on an EMR, and they, they forget that someone, a human being, is actually sitting in front of them and has a, a depth of complexity that um, just eludes us because we are distracted. And, and so I, I Right. In the, in the chapter, I'm trying in a way to exemplify um, how things ideally, I think, should be. I, I'm a little spoiled in an independent private practice. I don't have to fill out a form. So actually, when I do a, an initial ex, um, examination, I don't take notes. I've learned to remember pretty well, and I, and I take notes afterwards. I have to do that because otherwise I will forget important things. But, but at the time, I'm not taking notes. And what I found is that a free-flowing interview, starting with what it is that brings the person there, will, will get me more information faster than any kind of pre-existing format. And, and actually, there's a reason for that. This is, this is a little further in the chapter, but the reason is that psychotherapy is different from any other kind of, of medical endeavor because in psychotherapy, the roadmap is in the patient's or the client's mind. It's, it's things that nobody is aware of. The client's not aware of it. I don't know about it. Whereas in the rest of medicine, let's say a doctor is asking about pneumonia, then you, then you kind of have a decision tree that you're going to go down because you know there are only five types of pneumonia and blah, 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 blah. You, you, you already know the questions you're going to ask. In a clinical interview for psychotherapy, I don't know what questions I'm going to ask. Uh, when I open the door and invite my client in, I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth. It's different for every individual. It's, it just flows. So anyway, that's kind of an ideal. I'll also admit that, that in the chapter, it looks like I'm not asking a whole lot of questions. The, the truth is I do ask a lot of questions. Uh -huh. and they're questions that lead us along a path of what I call a spiral organization from whatever it is that brings the person in to the little details that flesh that out and make it make an understandable story. And, and that's my secret, by the way, to remembering is that I'm eliciting a story. Right. And human beings are very tuned into stories, so those are easy to remember. Right. So you're listening for style and content Everything is, is germane. It might be, yes, it might be the clothes the person is wearing. It might be the, the style of their speech, or it might be the content, or some mixture of, of, all, of those, all of those things. So where we've got all of our ears open, all of our eyes open, all of our senses to, to pick up what is, what is going on, what is this person about, and what, it is, what is it that's, that's troubling them. And, and so maybe, maybe we should spend a little bit of time talking about what in medicine is traditionally called the chief complaint. Okay. And I suppose also formulating the questions to identify what the chief complaint is. Right. So, so I'll start with, with, well, so what made you pick up the telephone and, and give me a call? Right. It's a, it's a very concrete way of, of focusing in on a moment in this person's life when something went tilt and they said, okay, I got to do something about this. That's a good way to, to capture because what it gets to is the fact that there's some energy there. There's enough energy to get somebody to go outside their normal routine 
and find a professional person to help them. That's an extraordinary event. So when you, when you talk about the kinds of questions uh, that you ask in, in the first session, you distinguish between abstract and concrete questions. And you just gave an example of a concrete question. What would you say is, is a more abstract question? How would you describe that? Well, sometimes, let's say a college student uh, comes to me after they flunked out of their first semester of college, and here they are back at home with mom and dad. And I might say, wow, it sounds like there's a story to tell. Right. Now, that's pretty abstract. That's for somebody who's got a pretty strong intellect and is going to be able to kind of organize their, their experience along a theme and, and maybe tell me, uh, tell me that, that story. Uh, somebody more concrete, it might be, well, well what, what symptoms, what was the symptom that was the most troubling? What was the one that made you feel like you needed to seek out some help? Yeah, so, so let's, let's talk about questions in general. Most people who've been trained in interview technique will have been taught about open-ended questions and closed-ended questions. And like the district attorney asked closed-ended questions like on the night of September 4th, were you or weren't you? And that's aimed at narrowing people down. Well, it makes people very, very uncomfortable to have that kind of question. On the other hand, open-ended questions are ones like, tell me the story and that leave the person a lot of room from which to, uh, to answer that question. Well, if we take that and think of it as a dimension that you can go all the way from very narrow, closed-ended questions to very wide, open-ended questions, what's the very most open-ended question one can think of? One of the secrets in the chapter is that it is silence. Mm -hmm. Silence has been used in psychotherapy. I don't use it a whole lot, but it has been, a little bit, has been used in psychotherapy to sort of challenge a person to say whatever comes to them. That's really scary. It's really uncomfortable because everybody's afraid that what's going to come bubbling up is something that's going to be shocking and, and reveal all of one's uh, you know, weaknesses and, and difficulties. And so silence is the most open-ended and the district attorney is the most closed-ended. And what we do is we learn to kind of adjust the level of, of concreteness and abstraction and the level of open-endedness and closed-endedness according to the person we're dealing with. So you're asking questions that the person is going to be able to handle, but within what they can handle, you want the most open-endedness you can get so that you, so that you do hear those things that, that maybe the person has never said before, or maybe they, it hasn't popped into their mind before. It's the surprises that are really going to help us. Right, and the silence really supports the manifestation of those surprises, because we do need to give right. our clients time to mm -hmm. reflect maybe on what they just said and see if something else comes up. There is some controversy <clears throat> over asking the question, why? What are your thoughts about that? Well, I, I'm a big proponent of asking why, but I'll tell you why. So the behavioral tradition says why is not, is not relevant. Why? And Well, that goes way, way back to, uh, to 19th century science, maybe some personal preferences of Dr. Watson, who didn't like to look into why. And so he said that, that the only things that were scientific 
were what you could observe. And anything subjective, like the words that came out of a person's mouth, were subjective and therefore not, not proper material for science. Well, then came the cognitive revolution a few decades ago, where psychologists began to realize that the words that came out of people's mouths and the ideas and the thoughts they had were really, really important and that, that people understood and, and interpreted and experienced events differently according to the ideas they had in their head. And so it became okay to ask about the content, but even then the, the tradition said, said, don't ask about why, don't speculate about that, because we can't really know for sure. The 90% of our thinking that goes on outside of consciousness is not accessible to us. We can have hints, we can have things that resonate, or th things that might spontaneously pop into somebody's mind that give us a sort of a window into the unconscious, but we can't really find out exactly what goes on there. So why should we try? Well, the reason is, the number one reason is that the healing, as we learned from the podcasts on infrastructure, the healing requires that material come up with feeling. That's how we know that we've activated neurons deep in the, in the limbic system where problems originate. And so the way we activate those is, is by touching people's feelings or having them share with us things that activate the feeling level. And how do we best do that? Well, there are various techniques like two chair exercises and EMDR and uh, things like that. But the kind of the original and the, and the queen of ways to elicit emotion, to understand the material that people have along with feeling is exploration, is verbal. We get people to talk about their feelings and their experiences and as they do, as they tell their story, the feelings are activated. They get in touch with the deeper layers in their mind. And that allows not just the understanding, but more important, the healing part of psychotherapy to take place. So that's why I think exploration and asking why not only satisfies our curiosity and maybe helps us develop some new hypotheses, but it really is essential for the healing to take place. And allows us to go deeper into the story of the client in front of us. Right. Yes. What I like to say is that words are articulate. Yes. <laughs> you know, they really are. The, the most subtle, the most, pre, the most accurate and precise way to express a feeling is, is what? It's not the tears. It's the metaphor that comes out of a person's mouth. It's, it's the words that, that we assemble that in some way resonate with that feeling. Uh, you speak of uh, the chief complaint and the spiral organization uh, of information and experience uh, that the client is going to reveal to you during, uh, during the storytelling. Right, so, so how, do we, how do we get at information when we don't have the roadmap so we, we start with the chief complaint, with the thing that energized the client to, uh, to come into therapy. And, and then what we want to hear after that is the facts that make sense and that, and that give us a context for that 
chief complaint. Like in the, in the first chapter of the book, there's our patient Jack, and he comes in with a panic attack out of the blue. And so that's very good to learn about the panic attack, and, and that's going to help us. But then very quickly, we want to know, well, what was going on in your life around this time? And soon we find out that Jack just got a promotion to a higher level of responsibility in his job and found out that his wife is pregnant with, uh, with their child. And so we begin to get some hints that maybe Jack is, is experiencing stress. And, and so, so then we're going to want to know about, well, how does Jack handle stress? And, and what's been his history with that. So anyway, you can see that very rapidly going from the chief complaint, other factors become uh, increasingly important and, and relevant to the inquiry. And in that inquiry, sometimes we have people who are very concrete and don't really know how to access their feelings and really just talk about them that much. And you, you say something interesting. Uh, which is that to get to feelings, ask for facts. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Uh, you know, if, if I ask my client, how do you feel about such and such, what everybody, every client understands, at least at first, is, is what abnormal feeling do you have about such and such? And so people clam up. They get, they get uncomfortable and their mind automatically squeezes down and restricts the amount of information you're going to get. So much better is something like, well, uh, let's say let's say the, the client reveals that their mother died a couple of weeks ago, and, and so I, I would ask, well, how did you handle that when your mother died? Right, you certainly wouldn't want to ask, how do you feel about right. that? Right, I'm asking for facts, and right. I'll get feelings. Right. Uh, yeah. And so many times we get evasive answers we have a client who will come to the session and say, I don't know, in answer to what seems to be a pretty basic question. But how do you handle that? And what does that tell you about the client? Well, my favorite thing about, about uh, interviewing is, is to keep track of what you don't know. Uh, so, so whenever there's an empty space, wherever there's something that seems to be skipped over or is said without feeling or gets an evasive answer gives me a reason to ask a little bit more. We'll, we'll talk about this extensively in the next chapter about what to do when, when you run into a blockage. But basically you're going to invite the person to either tell you a little bit more or if they can't do that, if your invitation isn't followed, then, then you're going to focus on what's on the discomfort that's going on there. So if somebody is giving evasive answers, then that means they're uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. They're not feeling safe. Mm -hmm. And so somehow you've got to address that lack of, of safety. So I might change the subject and say, you know, I'm wondering, is, is, is it kind of stressful to be here and talking to me right now? That seems like an abrupt change of subject, but actually the subject changed before I even asked the question. Because as soon as my client began to struggle, then the subject was, I'm so uncomfortable, I, I'm, I'm not dealing with this easily. Right. And so the result is that the conversation flows very smoothly and, and very naturally. And, and so now we're talking about a different subject, but it's totally relevant. And so you've actually confronted the client directly. Yes. 
I think the rule is don't pussyfoot around. Okay. <laughs> when, when beginning therapists run into a blockade of some sort, they usually try to sugarcoat the question or, or somehow evade the person's defenses. Well, when, when we see somebody trying to, trying to slip around our defenses, instinctively without even realizing it, human beings are made to react to that and, and block that approach very quickly. So that's why we really have to go in a sensitive way with what's going on with our, uh, with our client as much as possible. There are times when you'll miss the boat and, and then you just need to be quiet and let things get going again or, or, um, or change the subject as I mentioned before. You know, what we're talking about here is developing a good relationship. And that's one of the essential things that goes on in the first um, in the first session, right? Which can be tricky for many clinicians working in a clinical context where they have to, at the end of forty-five or fifty minutes, come up with a diagnosis and have all of these questions answered and clicked on, and uh, and stored in EMR. And yet, you know the. To really have that that person, the client, come back, you have to build that kind of relationship. You have to build the trust and the warmth. But at the same time, don't pussyfoot around. And you stay also, always ask about trauma and substance abuse, which can be covered up in shame. So how do you do that in a 45 or 50 minute session? Well, an, an initial interview is, is not going to be as cozy as, as psychotherapy itself. So people are prepared for some degree of distance, let's say, between the therapist and the, and the client. That the therapist is going to ask you some routine questions because they have to fill out the form. And clients generally will accept that. And you can actually use that to your advantage because that gives you the, the ability to ask questions you might not feel comfortable asking further down the road, such as about trauma and about substance abuse. And it's important to ask those questions even if you don't get an answer, even if you get an evasive answer, because by asking it you say that this is germane to the to the therapy, to the interview, and so the it's going to create some discomfort, a little bit of cognitive dissonance if the person doesn't answer you. And later on, say five sessions down the road, you may then get the answer to the question that you asked in the first session. So the way I like to say it is you have a, an extraordinary mandate to ask probing, difficult, uncomfortable, deep questions about another person's life. And in the first session, it's really an indication of your interest and your willingness to, to go with the client. You know, it's not like the, the internist is, who says, you're a social drinker, right? <laughs> Yeah, you know, information <laughs> lost didn't. It's not going to happen. You can say, you know, I'm really interested in lots of things, including substance abuse. Is is there any history there you can tell me about, or have you ever experienced something that might be traumatic? So that that fundamental curiosity about the client's story and uh, experience of their lives and reality is really Rogerian, mm -hmm. isn't it? In the sense that? In the sense that we have a positive regard for the person in front of us, that we really have a fundamental curiosity about mm -hmm. who they are and, mm -hmm. and, and what brings them here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so it is your, your 
basic human interest and, and curiosity actually is a big part of what, what forms a strong relationship and the other part that makes it possible to develop a good positive rapport is the fact that you pick up on cues, you pick up on leads. When something comes out that you weren't expecting, when the, when the client volunteers something that you show an interest, or when there's an indication of some emotion, the fact that you show an interest and you follow up on that is what tells the person that you're really interested in them and, and you really want to know and you really want to help them. So I'd say that, you know, rather than the kind of the rote niceties like, uh, hello, how are you? It's that genuine interest that really is the mainstay of building the rapport that you're going to need. And gives our clients that sense of support that, that they need, mm -hmm. that they are actually mm -hmm. interesting to you. Yeah. How do you build a hypothesis about the client in the first couple sessions? Well, I, I like to think of it as, as reverse engineering. Reverse engineering is, is when an engineer has a, a, a piece of machinery or, or a device of some sort and doesn't have the instruction manual, doesn't know where it came from or why it was built. Like let's say you come from Mars and you find, you find some object on Earth and say, what, what is this? And you ask yourself, what was the person trying to do when they created this thing? Well, when we see a piece of maladaptive behavior or thought, in, in our client, then, then we want to ask, why was their instinctive problem solver mind, what were they trying to do? Mm -hmm. What was the function? What was the purpose of this thing that takes them away from what's healthy, away from what's going to help them in life? There has to be a good reason for it. The brain is very stingy about energy. It doesn't do things for no reason at all. Spontaneous thoughts may, be, may look spontaneous, but they're there for a purpose. And so we get to ask, what is that purpose? And it's between looking at the solution and then asking about what, what is the problem that that solution was designed to solve. And usually it's going to boil down to, as we learned in the infrastructure chapters of the, of the book, it's going to boil down to some uncomfortable feeling that triggered a maladaptive response and the, the response itself which is some kind of thought or behavior that accomplishes the goal of keeping away from an uncomfortable feeling. So you've identified the entrenched dysfunctional patterns That's you're right. beginning to mm -hmm. and then you have to make a plan. Right and, and so I just want to mention one other thing about the hypothesis that I think a couple of pieces of data are particularly important in the first session and that is what was the point where the emotion was most palpable, was most present in the room? Because that's going to tell you something really, really important. And the other one is what were the surprises? What were the things that came out that you didn't expect that were most, that most piqued your curiosity? And so I'd, I would urge every clinician to really sit down afterwards and, and think about those things. I'll say that I, I, I generally have some kind of a hypothesis towards the end of the first session, but sometimes I don't, mm -hmm. in which case I'm going to have to, the plan is going to be, let's meet again until things begin to get clear. But it also is very helpful to think about things afterwards and just let your own unconscious mind percolate on the material that you've received. And so the second session 
can be very, very useful. The second session tells you how the person responded to the first one, which has lots of rich information in it. And the second session is also a time when you've had a chance to kind of sit with the material and and see what it all adds up to. So, so I'd say that the first session is kind of a place for a first draft, and and then that gets refined over over time. And it's important then at the end of that initial session to develop together a plan that's satisfactory that meets both of your needs, that meets the needs of the clinician and that seems to the client like that's going to be uh, safe and effective and helpful. So you want to share something of you know, what to expect and how it's going to work so that your client can make a, an educated decision about whether this is something they want to pursue. All right. So we arrive at an agreement and uh, understanding that prior to arriving at that agreement, uh, it can feel like we're walking in a thick fog, as you say, which yes. I think is a beautiful metaphor. And you remember that, that entrenched dysfunctional patterns come in layers, and so we don't really need to get to the very deepest layers. We're probably not going to. We're going to see what we see first, and, and then we'll, we'll work along as we go. This concludes today's podcast. We hope it's been helpful to you. We'd love you to visit Dr. Smith's website, www.howtherapyworks.com, where you can purchase the book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide, and find other articles for clients and therapists. Dr. Smith, would you like to add anything? Well, that's it for today. So, Emily and I want to wish you well until the next podcast. So, bye for now. Goodbye. Goodbye.